0: wonder what in the world is going on. Um, The agenda that has been made public for our country is is pretty ugly Um, if in fact it is fulfilled. Just a few of those things that we would wonder how could that ever happen. There's a movement to take in God we trust off of all of our denominations of money. There's a a movement to silence Christianity completely that's publicly being presented. There's a movement to take the Star Spangled Banner away and replace it with John Lennon's Imagine. And they're already doing that at sporting events. That song begins, Imagine if there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. It's an atheistic attack by John Lennon on the God that we were just singing about, and there's a movement for that to be our national anthem. Um, How does that happen? How is that the reality in 2021? You have to back up to see how that happens, how the First Amendment, which is about to be done away with, which says that, the government has no authority in a church, has no authority on when they meet, how often they meet, what they can do, has no right to say that they have that authority. Um, if, If we look at history and we look at what happened, it's actually the church that is giving that authority away to the government. How does a church do that? Well, we have to back up from there to individuals and churches Um, It's been correctly stated that democracy only works in a nation where people are trained by God to be good. You can't even um, offer it as an option in other places. So democracy is failing not because the government system doesn't work or isn't correct. It's failing because of the people it's leading have subtly and slowly turned their backs on God. And if you step back a little bit farther, we get into Romans 1 and 2, which will explain and answer all of these questions, but the gospel of God is what we are reading in the opening verses of the book of Romans. That gospel is a forgotten gospel in the United States of America. We have, like the Jews did by the time Jesus came, made religion more important than the gospel. Our country has never needed the gospel more than it needs it today. A person to person, leading, discipling, sharing the truth of the gospel, which in this country, especially since, I mean, when we get into the next couple of weeks in Romans chapter 1, you will see the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s in America in this Progression and what has happened that starts with the gospel being strictly paid attention to by people who came to this country and most of them gave their lives. I don't know if you knew that part about the pilgrims. They came with their Geneva Bibles, an accurate translation for their day, and they held tightly to it. They came in the first place because they weren't allowed to separate government from the church in England. So they came here to start a government where the church would lead the government. And most of them gave their lives. It was a very difficult journey to even begin the United States of America. But they held tightly to the gospel, the same gospel that we are reading today that few people in few churches could describe. The invitation to give up my life for his life is the gospel. And we will read some glorious things that that God will do in return to every person who does that. But he is kept from every person who doesn't do that. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we can either be swallowed up by what is around us or we can believe that your word is true. And that is that we were created for an exact time as this, the world needs to know that there is an authority who is coming who is willing to give them everything right now but cannot give them everything on their terms. The gospel is not understood in this country anymore. It needs to be understood by me it needs to be understood by my family, by my church, by my community because the same way in which countries were one with the gospel, people are one today. Help us to understand your gospel in Jesus name. Amen. We're going to do a start out in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1 and kind of review what we looked at last week with just a couple of thoughts. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God in 2021 comes from the lips of Jesus by the power of the Spirit through the pen of the apostle Paul and there is no other gospel. There is no other way that it comes to us. There is no other form. There is nothing that is acceptable. There is no religion. There is what Paul calls in verse 1 of Romans the gospel of of God, And Paul will say by the time we get to chapter 2 that this is called Paul's gospel. Not about Paul, but the, what Paul writes is the only true gospel known to mankind. So he is the, the servant Paul is to Christ who was the servant before him. He is the apostle, the one sent for the gospel of God. Verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to the earthly life was a descendant of David and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the son of God. Unto you a son is given. A child is born, but a son is given. The son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hold your finger there just for a second. Go a couple books to your left to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Understand what is happening. If, we would, if you would read all of John, chapter 13, as far as we can tell, there are 14 individuals in this room. This is the night Jesus would be betrayed. So the Gospel of John is extensive about the last 24 hours of Jesus. Jesus is put before Pilate in chapter 18. He is put on the cross in chapter 19. Chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18 is teaching that Jesus did the night that he was betrayed. And he begins that by taking his disciples into the upper room. The 14 individuals that are there are 12 disciples, Jesus, And Satan, Satan is not omnipresent. When we see Jesus, when he institutes the Last Supper, when he has them in the upper room that night, he tells us in John chapter 13 that Satan is in the room. And at the moment that Judas gets up to leave, Satan possesses. He goes in Judas, just like he will the Antichrist. But what Jesus does in this room and that there's just the tension that would have been on his shoulders. He knows everything. He knows Satan's in the room. He sees him. He's the only one that can. He knows that Judas is going to betray him, that he's going to be possessed. He knows that no matter how defiantly Peter promises, he's about to deny Jesus three times. He knows that all of the apostles in this room are going to run when he is arrested. Knowing all of that, he takes off his cloak, puts a towel around his waist, gets down on his knees, and washes their feet. And it would be an interesting job today um, to do, but nothing like it was in that day. There were no shoes and socks. There were feet, sandals, and what was ever in the street. And the streets were not traveled by cars, I will just say that. And Jesus is demonstrating to them what it will be like to be a servant. So we just read a couple of verses here in verse 16 after he has washed their feet. Verse 16, very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He's telling them to serve People, Not to govern people, not to have authority over people, but to serve them. So Paul rightly begins the, the book of Romans, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus. Jesus was the servant all through the, bo- the book of Isaiah. He is the servant on the night he was betrayed. He served from day one to the day he was on the cross, and he expects us to do the same. We're reading on in Romans chapter 1, verse 5 through him we received grace and apostleship apostleship meaning the apostles to call and this is the gospel all gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake the gospel is a call to obedience that comes from faith there is no other gospel There is no, we will see, if we read like John chapter 2, there's a place where everybody believes in Jesus. Much like we have at altar calls and and stadiums and things like that, people say, I believe in Jesus, and then they go on with their lives. So in John chapter 2, it says many believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. They genuinely said, you're the one. This is true, but obedience didn't follow. And Jesus, it says in John chapter 2, knew that about them in advance. He knew what was in their heart. They believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. So the gospel, if we understand it, is verse 5, obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. It is for him that he calls us. It benefits us greatly, but it is for him. Second corinthians five fifteen. he died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them he died on the cross answer to the question why did jesus die most common answer so he could save us from hell bible answer he died so i would no longer live for myself but live for him that's why he hung on the cross salvation from hell is a part of that but he died so that we would live our lives for him. Verse 6, And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ. He owns us. We have stated that by saying, Yes, Jesus, I will follow you. I am here to obey. I am your servant. I belong to you. What are my commands? What would you like me to do? Hold your finger there and go a few books to your right, to First Thessalonians, where he is one of Paul's first letters saying similar things, and he's describing faith. Faith is, I know for sure, Hebrews 11.1. One. The result is obedience. I know for sure who he is, and what he says is true, therefore I obey him. That's the plan of God for every human being. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul is thinking about these heavily persecuted people in Thessalonica, and he's thanking God for them. As he's actually in Corinth around 50 AD writing this. We always thank God for all of you, and we continually mention you in our prayers We remember before our God, the Father, your work produced by faith. What does faith do? It produces work. Remember when we read from James chapter 2, faith without deeds is what? It's dead. And someone would argue, well, I have faith. It's just dead faith. Is that your position? Is that what you want to have when you stand before God? Jesus, I always believed in you. You know I do. Um, I just didn't work for you. I would not want to be in that position. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, that's the option he gives us. I love you. Do you want to love me back? If you do, labor is the result. And your endurance inspired by hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Back to Romans chapter 1. So what he says to Thessalonica is that I'm hearing about you. Just like he says in Rome, Romans. Just like he says in all of his letters. Because these are faithful churches. He says to the church in Thessalonica. We, we go before God and I thank him every time I pray for you. And I'm grateful because... I remember before him that your your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel came to Thessalonica and it took hold. And the evidence is work, labor, and endurance. That's the only descriptions that we see in the Bible of Christians. It is not our belief, it is our response to what we believe. Acting like God is telling the truth. Verse 7, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's introduction to this book, his opening Of this letter, he's sending through a woman named Phoebe to Rome before he gets there. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. What does that mean? That means their obedience is being reported all over the world. If someone says, I have faith, I'm just not active no one's going to report that if i have faith that is active like i said faith always becomes visible what i do is what is true for me it is where my faith is work produced faith um faith pr- faith leads to that work it leads to the obedience paul is saying i'm hearing that about you everywhere i go verse 9 God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. He has never been there. What is happening in Rome while he is writing this? All the Jews have been evicted from the city. Everyone Paul would have known personally that was a Christian in Rome would have been a Jew most likely, and they've all been evicted. And the rising power is, is Nero is, a, is approaching the throne. Nero's form of entertainment was to take Christians and light them on fire while they're alive and line the streets with them so that he could walk among them as they were screaming. That's what's happening in Rome as Paul is about to go there. What is happening in Paul's life? Well, in the meantime, he has been beaten with rods multiple times. He has been flogged like Jesus was in the Passion five different times. He has been imprisoned multiple times. He has been pursued and stoned by the Jews. He has been hated by the Gentiles and hunted by the Jews. And he's saying, I can't wait to get there to tell you the gospel. I can't wait to get there. I'm praying that the way would finally be open because Jesus told me at the beginning I would end up in Rome. So in the the year leading up to Paul getting to Rome, he is arrested. He is put on trial. The Jews try to assassinate him. He goes before the courts and he appeals to the Roman officials so that Felix and Festus and Agrippa push Paul to Rome. And Paul is headed there and the world will never be the same after Paul brings the gospel to Rome. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians, a few books to the right, in chapter 1. If we are in real time, we are in 57 AD, as Paul is penning the book of Romans. And we are, if we are in real time, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul's in Rome. 60 to 62 AD, Paul was in prison for the first time in Rome for two years. He tells, as we're studying on Wednesday nights, the church in Colossae, that he realizes that's God's plan. And he's grateful for it. So along with bringing the gospel to Rome, which Paul understands, when he gets there, it dawns on him the universal plan that God has. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, This is my instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the world. Paul gets to Rome, he stands trial, and he's put under arrest and he's put in a house arrest, chained to two Roman soldiers, and he writes Philippians, he writes Ephesians, he writes Colossians, he writes these letters from a prison cell, and he's realizing God needed the gospel to go to Rome, but even more significantly, it needed to go to the world. So much of what Paul writes to you and I is from a prison cell, Philippi is a church in Macedonia that was heavily persecuted. Paul was heavily persecuted when he went there. And now he's writing a letter back to them. And we pick it up in verse 20 of Philippians chapter 1. And he is appealing to them in the same way he is to Rome. He knows what lies ahead in Rome. He knows what his life's journey is going to be. And he says... I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way ashamed, he will say that in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether in life or in death. For for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We have a Christianity in America that is self-preserving. That is, what's it going to cost me to use the name of Jesus? What's it going to cost me to go to church? What's it going to cost me to tell the truth and be the truth in a dark world? Paul says, that's not even on my radar. He says, if I go to Rome and they kill me, praise Christ. If I go to Rome and I live, praise Christ. In fact, he's going to, in the next few verses, he's going to say, honestly, with what Paul's been through by this time, I'll take heaven for me, but I'm here for you. Reading on, verse 21 again, for, me to, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, better for Paul. But verse 24, it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your and for joy in the faith so that. Through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Paul is saying to these, this church in Philippi, he's saying this from a prison cell. He knows that he's going to be let loose in a little bit. Um, when we read like Second Timothy, for example, in the book of Hebrews, where Paul is writing on the very last days of his life, he knows he's about to be executed. Here he is saying... I know the Holy Spirit has told me I'm going to live a little bit longer. Not for me. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're alive today, it's not for you. Everything you are endowed with in this lifetime is for others. We will see that a little bit later today in the message. Paul says, I'm not here for me. It would be better for me, Paul says, if I was in the presence of Christ. Paul has seen heaven, and he's seen the earth, and he says, I'll take heaven. But, Paul says, because of God's will, I will stay here for your benefit to help you grow. Back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 11 Paul steps into the church aspect of it and he describes here and he will describe it chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14 and chapter 15 when we get there. The mutual encouragement is the primary reason we go to church. Encouragement to be obedient. Verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul writes these things all the time, things that can only be done person to person. Person to person, in person, in church, among the body. Paul says, when I get to Rome, those of you who are in underground And those of you who are being persecuted, I long for us to get together. I pray that I may be able to give you something spiritually that will make you strong to be obedient. And I pray that it will be an exchange in both directions that we will be encouraged. And I pray that the outcome will be that we will both be faithful moving forward. That is the purpose of church Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just the next book in your Bible. As Paul writes this way in all of his letters, in chapter 12, he is describing a local body of believers as a physical body. So in the verses preceding, we don't have time to look at all of the verses today, but he's talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about unity. He's talking about diversity in the body. He is explaining in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that before the creation of the world, God knew what church you would be in. And in knowing that, he gives you spiritual gifts that are for people in that body. There is not a person in this room that has been endowed the same way. But Larry has been endowed for me, and I've been endowed for Larry, and that's true no matter who I make that statement with. So not only do I have spiritual gifts, but I have them specifically for you, and vice versa. So he's explaining that all throughout this chapter, and he's talking about the body and how if if you take the hand off, the body is ineffective. If when we come together, a foot is missing or an eye is missing or an ear is missing, the body hurts, the body suffers, the body is inadequate. And he's describing that. So we're just going to look at a couple of verses It would benefit you to read chapters 12, 13, and 14 where Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. But in verse 7, this statement is very straightforward and simple. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. What does that mean? Manifestation, that's a big word. The Holy Spirit demonstrates in you in through you in a unique way each person is given a specific way for the holy spirit to operate through them and he will manifest that work through you so if we just start with before i know my gifts the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness self-control those are manifestations of the holy spirit love never Begins with me. You say, wait a minute, aren't you a Christian? Yes, it never begins with me. I am a resource of love. The source is always Jesus. It is distributed by the Holy Spirit. Now he's talking here about spiritual gifts. Mark has been given specific spiritual gifts that are unique to everyone else in this body. And they're for everyone else in this body. And if he is willing to find them and use them, they will benefit everyone else in this body. So he says the manifestation is unique and the purpose is common for the common good. That means my spiritual gifts aren't for me. They're for you. Your spiritual gifts aren't for you. They're for me. So when you see all of these pictures, the the hand and the eye and the foot and all of those things, we begin to understand how we're like a physical body. Imagine going to work tomorrow without one of your hands. Paul is saying, imagine going to church next Sunday without one of your hands. Because that manifestation of the Spirit through that person only comes from that person endowed by the Holy Spirit to the people in the body, person to person, in person. Manifestation can only happen that way. Let's drop down in this same chapter. Actually, I got 27 in your notes. Let's begin in verse 21 so we we grasp more of what Paul is saying here. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. This is us being bound together together And and if someone could say in the church, well, so-and-so wasn't here, but it's no big deal, we don't need them. Paul says you can't say that. Verse 22. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker, do you feel like the strongest person in the room? Do you feel closer to the weakest person in the room? God is zeroing in on you if that's true. He is focusing in on you. If people are ignoring you, It is not God, Paul is saying here. Verse 23, the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts, maybe the the people that are recognizable and and they're active in the church, those parts, Paul says, need no special treatment. But God has put the body together together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So if you feel you're in the back corner, if you feel, well, I, don't, I don't know what I could offer to the church, God is focusing on you. Verse 25, So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, Every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Turn to Ephesians, just a couple more books to your right. Chapter 4. Ephesians is described as in Christ or the body of Christ. It is another masterful book by Paul just filled with doctrine. We're only going to look at a couple of verses. For the first, especially verses 11 through 16, he's talking about the design of the church. In the first opening verse is the di- design of salvation. And we get to verse 15, he's describing this church bound together. Only if we're together and each part is doing its work, each manifestation is active Verse 15, instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We were just told in 1 Corinthians, you, we, this is the body of Christ. We become mature together and only together here in Ephesians 4. Verse 16, how together, Paul, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament Grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The picture is the same in every letter. When one part is missing, the church suffers. When each part does its work, we speak the truth in love and we become this unified body that Jesus says the gates of hell cannot withstand. There is nothing in this world Nothing, Paul says, that can withstand a Christ-following church. Nothing. Does that mean we'll avoid persecution? Probably not. It probably means the opposite. But the power of God on earth, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, is done today through a church where each part is doing its part, designed by God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Paul is writing this letter at the end of his life. To Jews like the Jews that have just been evicted from Rome, they're being heavily persecuted. And he's telling them to hang in there. And he will be telling them the same things he tells them that we saw in Romans and in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians and in all of his letters. In Hebrews chapter 10, um, we can begin in verse 19, Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, faith is the confidence of things hoped for. Since we have that confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, is talking, we can go directly to God by a new and a living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, Jesus' body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. All of this is one continual passage. Paul is saying, get closer to God, get closer to God, get closer to God. If we went to Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 2, where is Jesus? In church. You can only get closer to Jesus obedient-wise in church. You say, well, he's omnipresent. You're right. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But his location described currently, yes. You're exactly right. This building, that's a good point if you didn't hear Alex. We're not talking about this building. A match can take this building out. The gates of hell cannot withstand a body of believers. So for 450 years, there were no church buildings. And they were probably the most faithful people in the history of the church. The point is that when, when we're talking about ligaments, we're not talking about walls. When we're talking about a hand and an eye and a foot, we're not talking about walls. We're talking about Alex and Larry and Mark bound together like ligaments, growing together. No one falls. No one falls out. No one withholds God's manifestation through them we're talking about a body of Jesus Christ. So the position of God the Father designated in the Bible currently is on his throne in heaven. The position of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1 and 2, is the church. He is the head of the body, the church, so that in everything he may have the supremacy. That's his position during the church age. Every church that is following Christ has a lampstand in it, according to Revelation, that is metaphoric for Christ saying, this is my church. And next to that lampstand, he holds the messengers in his hand. And he walks among us. He is walking among us during this service. So he's omnipresent in that it's not just this body. It's everybody that is following Christ. He is among them. Now do you want to be in church? That's where Jesus is. That's what he is saying to these people in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 22, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Again, faith brings all these things. Obedience, um, surrendering to God, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promises faithful, how do we hold unswervingly? How do we draw closer to God? Verse 24. Again, all of these places are manifestation, encouragement, mutual encouragement. Verse 24 and 25 is not just the reason to be in church. It's the plan of the church. The plan of the church, the reason we come together, the reason we can't do this through media is because we're here to encourage each other to obey Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. If we leave this place without that concept, we leave this place having not been obedient to what God says. So in verse 24, "...and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds." Let's contemplate, let's figure out how can I encourage you more to follow Christ? How can you encourage me more to follow Christ? Verse 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, the rapture approaching. Paul is saying, you've got to do this more and more and more and, and he's not saying this to people that live in the united states or anything like the people that live in the united states he's saying this to people who are your children may be taken from you if you go to church your home may be burnt down you may be in prison you may be put in stocks on the street corner you may be beaten publicly for this and he's saying hang in there encourage each other Verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning, there are all kinds of sins. But what sin is he talking about here? The same thing. Being faithful, being there, drawing close to God, spurring one another on towards love and good works. Again, can only happen person to person, in person. If we deliberately, verse 26, keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, which we've just read it, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And the one who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Have you ever heard that described that way? Missing out on fellowshipping, encouraging, and spurring one another on is trampling Jesus under your feet. Ouch. That hurts. That's what Paul is saying here. He is saying that when we know what is true and we do something else, we trample the Son of God underfoot who has treated as an an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Drop down to verse 36. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Perseverance, we read in 1 Thessalonians, your your work um, produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your perseverance is focused on hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't think your feet were that powerful, right? <laughs> so what David is saying is at the end of Romans in chapter 16, verses 19, 20, it says that when we're obedient, we trample Satan under our feet. Here Paul says when we're disobedient, we trample Christ under our feet. Um, so obedience, drawing near to God is really important. Perseverance is really important to God. Um, dependability is probably the greatest ability that God loves in a human being. Let's go back to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, verse 13. I do not want to. You to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. You can read that through the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit would say, no, Paul, go this way. Now go this way. In order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the Gentiles. I am obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. This message, this the plan is, I'm going to go to the Jews. The Jews are to reach the world. I know how well they're going to do that. I know how much they're going to fail. So then I'm going to use... The Apostle Paul and the Jews who are faithful to reach the Gentiles, to reach the entire world, and this gospel is so powerful and so lavish. He says, "I can't wait to come to Rome. I've wanted to many times." Turn to Ephesians chapter one. As we're just gonna, I'm gonna try to stay out of the way and just read um, some of these things that Paul is. As we look at the progression of the gospel quickly in a few verses in Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians 1 we're going to look at I'm going to just do a a bunch of reading um, without too much commentary Ephesians 1 and verse 3 praise be oh by the way he's in Rome in a prison cell writing this praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So that verse is really important, first of all. So stop there for a minute. 1 Peter 1.20, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world to be the sacrifice because he was going to give free will, meaning we were going to sin, meaning he would have to redeem us, meaning there would be a cross. Jesus was chosen. Omniscience sees tomorrow as clearly as today. So every person in this room who is a follower of Christ was known to be there before the creation of the world. Everything that takes a person from separated to God to in the presence of God is only found in Jesus Christ. So Paul will say, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, all through Ephesians. So first of all, before the creation of the world, God knows that. So what happens to us in real time happens to God before time. Reading on, verse 5, he predestined, scary word, shouldn't be. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Predestination is scary to people. He decided who could be saved, and no, that's not predestination. Foreknowledge always comes first. I knew you would believe in my son, and I've predetermined what the result would be. So what the result of our decision will be has been predetermined. What isn't predetermined is foreknowledge, whether we will believe or not believe. Reading on, verse 7. In him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Isn't it awesome that it pleases him to save us from our sins and to bring us to obedience and to allow us to work for him, which he purposed in Christ. Verse 10, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. In God's eyes, in his mind, already happened in real time. The day that you decided to follow Christ, the day that I decided to follow Christ, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Verse 11, speaking to the Jews, first for the Jew, second for the Gentile. We'll read that. We just read that in verse 16 of Romans 1. In him, we, the Jews, were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, the Jews, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Now here's you and me, if you are a Gentile. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, faith comes from hearing, The gospel of your salvation, hearing the gospel, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. And that seal, Paul says, is the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Wow. (laughs) Wow. I mean, there's four sermons in there. We're just looking at God knows all this in advance. In Christ is the only way. Submission to him is the only way. When you choose that way, God the Father seals you in Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. It is a path of obedience that we choose and it is immediately secure forever unchangeable. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, how destitute we were before he did that for me. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, meaning Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Where is your spirit right now? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Here's the gospel summary now, verse 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. We typically stop there because the works that I do don't save me. True statement. Works are not in his plan of salvation. False statement. We are not saved by works. We are saved to works. The call, chapter, Romans chapter 1 and verse 5, is obedience through faith. So we miss out and we drop verse 10. Verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's so much that happens before creation. I don't want to get too long. But before the creation of the world, he knows if you will believe in his son. If he knows that you will, he puts you in his son in his mind before the creation of the world. We get to Romans chapter 8. He puts you in his son. He calls you. He justifies you. And he glorifies you and sees you in heaven in the future before the creation of the world. And he equips us and endows us, as I said earlier, with a manifestation for the common good in the church that you're in. He specifically designs us and then he maps out a life from that moment to our last breath. And that's what he created us for. That's why Jesus died on the cross. It is not more than we originally thought. It is significantly more than we originally thought. Go back to Romans chapter 1. In your notes in verse 17, living faithfully in an evil world. So how do I do this now? You're not the first and you won't be the last person to ask that question. In verse 17, Paul says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. When Paul is writing this, as I said, Nero is coming into power. Um, Nero would execute the apostle Paul. He would execute Peter the Apostle. It was a horrible time seemingly for Christians and that the gospel exploded during this time. It was unstoppable. The momentum of the gospel and these faithful martyrs for Christ. It was a horrible time to be a Christian from a Christian standpoint. It was a perfect time to be a Christian from God's standpoint. Turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk. If you go to Matthew and start going backwards, Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, near the end of the Old Testament, we will probably do some reading in Jeremiah, who is a contemporary of Habakkuk, when we get to the the end of chapter 1, where we see the condition of America the condition of America is like the condition of Judah as we're reading Habakkuk. So when we get Habakkuk is primarily a prayer and he starts out by saying, God, do you see what's going on here? Are you going to do something? Look at my people. Lord, please bring us around. Please bring this nation back. Please. And while he's praying this, he's In Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah is praying the same thing. God, look at this nation. Rescue us. And by that moment, God says to Jeremiah, stop praying. If Daniel was here and Noah was here and Job was here, I would rescue them and I would take this nation into captivity. Habakkuk is praying the same prayer and we begin in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 1, the prophecy of Habakkuk, the the prophet received verse 2, how long Lord must I call for help but you do not listen or cry out to you violence but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? destruction and violence are before me there is strife and conflict abounds therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails the wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted that that exact prayer would fit today right he's praying that about the nation of judah who is about to go into captivity Because Judah has said as a nation, we don't want you, God. And Habakkuk does. Jeremiah does. There are faithful people who do, and God rescues them. Daniel goes into captivity, and he spends his whole ministry in Babylon. But the nation has to be destroyed for God to be listened to. Um, So he is praying all throughout chapter 1, just We come to chapter 2 and verse 4. This is not the answer he was expecting. Paul says, he's quoting this verse in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. The righteousness of God is being revealed. And it's righteousness that comes to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And it's powerful. And then he says, the just will live by their faith. And he's quoting this verse. And he is saying, God is saying to Habakkuk, why don't you do something, God? Why don't you deliver us? Why don't you see this injustice? Why don't you make things right? The nation has turned its back on God, and God says to Habakkuk in verse 4, the enemy is puffed up. His desire is not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. If I go to God before me with all that is going on in this country, that's his answer to me. If you personalize this, God, look at this country. Think of all the people who paid for those stripes on that flag and those stars, and look what's happening now. What's your answer, God? Jim, be faithful. That's his answer. Habakkuk gets it, and he closes this, all of chapter 3 as a prayer. Pick it up in verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. He gets the message. The message he gets is twofold. I'm God. Be faithful gets it enough to say okay God I understand no matter what I see here no matter what fears attack me you are God and I will rejoice Heavenly Father thank you for the promise to Habakkuk that we need to hear today thank you for the gospel as we move forward and and we see um, in the next verses both the wrath of God And the universal love and desire for everyone to have those lavished, indescribable gifts that Paul described in Ephesians 1 for every human being who will ever live. Help us to understand how important it is to be faithful in a world that is dark. In Jesus' name, amen.